So we've talked about um, the experience of being called out and the experience of being kicked out. And it may not matter once you're on the open road how you got there, but there are these two very distinct ways that you might find yourself away from home. And today we thought, what, what if we just looked a little more closely at a person in Scripture who's called out and a person in Scripture who's kicked out and see if we can, again, like last week, find any way that their experience rhymes with our own life experience a little bit, see if it names anything for us, see if it points out anything for us that we could lay hold of if we find ourselves wandering. So that's what we're doing today. Uh, You guys up for a little bit of work before we go? Come on, 11. (laughs) All right, cool. First one uh, we mentioned last week briefly, but we're going to look more closely at his story. His name is Abram. He would later be called Abraham when a moment uh, happens in his story. But let me take you to the moment in Genesis chapter 12 where we begin to hear what's happening with him. Now, just so you know, Genesis chapter 12 is what you might call one of the most important uh, chapters, parts of the whole scripture. It's almost like Genesis 1 through 11 or preamble or prologue to the story of the Hebrew scriptures. And then Genesis 12 is really where the action starts to take off, like the inciting incident that sets loose everything that happens after it. So this is really important stuff in the scriptures. And in Genesis 12, we read about the man Abram. The Lord said to him, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, a couple of observations about what happens when he's called out. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household. That seems like every sort of belonging you could think of, right? Country is cultural, national identity, right? It's safe place, safe terrain, safe turf. It's the land that you know. Go from your people, go from your tribe. By the way, tribal belonging really matters at this time because the tribe are the people who protect you quite literally from physical threat, right? So leave, leave the familiarity, leave the safety, leave your father's household. Now, I mean, Abram's got like a responsibility to live up to his role as son of the father here, right? But he leaves that behind. Surely there's some risk involved here. Surely he has to buck some expectations from the people around him to follow this call. And for all of that, first of all, he gets to the land I will show you, which seems highly unrewarding to me, right? (laughs) Leave everything you know, and I'll tell you the rest later. (laughs) Pack up and move, like get out there, and then we'll figure out what's to happen next. Now, uh, this is one of those moments in Scripture where, through modern eyes, we can miss some of the important things that are happening. But again, we're asking today, how might our lives rhyme with the experience of wandering we see in the Scriptures, and is there anything to learn from it or to look for from these stories? And one of the things that happens here is noted uh, by a a fairly respected scholar named Thomas Cahill, who's uh, written a lot about human history. And Cahill says that uh, this is peculiar for the moment it occupies in human history and the evolution of human consciousness. Cahill says that in this moment, say roughly 2,000 years before Jesus, when this story is first being told, if you could go around the world and kind of survey all the wisdom that you would find among ancient cultures, you would discover a theme or a pattern about what you can expect from a human life. And the theme or the pattern about what you can expect is that tomorrow will be exactly the same as today. That stories don't go anywhere, that lives don't go anywhere, that future is same as past, is same as present. We're just kind of stuck where we are. And Cahill says this actually represents an awakening moment for humanity, that maybe stories go somewhere, maybe future means something, maybe this is all headed in a certain direction. The way Cahill says it is this is the moment where the old world of the wheel is laid behind for the new world of Abram and the journey. It's actually a very different way of thinking about life, but we might miss that because a lot of us are prone to thinking of journey and future and things going somewhere. 
But for Abram and maybe for like all of humanity, there's a moment in consciousness where things need to shift away from stasis, from being stuck, from expecting that tomorrow is the same as today, to a different kind of outlook about the fact that our lives are going somewhere, our stories matter, future is a meaningful word. That's a big deal here, right? Well, Abram doesn't just get um, to the land I will show you. Abram gets a little more than that from God because there is a big promise wrapped up in this. So let me show you what God says next. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That seems pretty promising, right? It's even more promising when you realize that 2,000 years before Christ, most human beings didn't conceive of like afterlife in any meaningful form. So the best you could hope for is that your name would go on through your family. And that's actually like what it meant to know that your life would continue. So on your deathbed, if you could look out upon your children and your grandchildren, that, that was sort of the comfort that you would have, that the meaning of your life and your presence would go on in the world. So God gives them this really big promise. God goes mafia boss for a middle, little bit here, right? It's like, they got a problem with you, they got a problem with me, right? Like, so there's a little bit of that going on there. But we get this big, expansive, hopeful promise for Abram. The kind of thing that, A, maybe you say, well, that's why he would leave, right? If God came to you and said, I'm calling you out so I can bless you like crazy and so I can expand your family and give you a sense of eternal life, you might also want to leave, right? Like, you might want to follow that calling. There's some hope there. Now, this promise is so big and important and unexpected in Abram's life that you, you might think he's earned it somehow, right? Like, how is he the candidate for this kind of uh, adventure? How is he the person that gets picked for this, this big, beautiful, important story that's going to be told through his life and through his family? Well, it's, it's such a, a potent question that Midrashic commentaries develop around the story of Abram to explain why Abram gets this big, impressive invitation. So like one of these Midrashic commentary stories developed after this text is laid down says that when Abram was a kid, he became the world's first monotheist. And if you're reading the Jewish scriptures, it's a big deal to be a monotheist, right? It's like you got the answer right, right? But nobody is a monotheist in the way these stories are told. But Abram understands that there's one true God, and Abram's father is an idol maker. He literally fashions little physical, tangible idols. And Abram, the ever-righteous son, decides that he's going to deal with this. And so one night when his father's not around, he smashes all the little idols except for the biggest one, and he puts the hammer or the axe in the, in the idol's hands. And then dad comes back and says, what happens? And Abram says, I think he did it. <laughs> of course, his dad says, that's ridiculous. And Abram says, well, then why do you worship them? Yeah, right? Pretty impressive. Yeah. So that's one of these midrashic stories that's, that's created to help explain how it is that Abram is eligible for this big, beautiful promise. What's curious, though, is you don't get any of that in the scriptural text. There's only one thing that you get about Abram before this promise comes along. It shows up a couple sentences earlier at the end of chapter 11. Let me show you all we know about Abram from this text. This is chapter 11. Watch this. This is uh, his family line. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. This would later be called Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. You catch that? The only thing this story gives us about Abram and his wife before it explains the promise of a massively expanding family line 
is the observation that it doesn't seem that they have the capacity to create a massively expanding family line. Now, I, I draw attention to this today specifically because we're talking about leaving home and what happens on the open road. And I'm proposing that wandering has great good within it, that we're actually meant to be travelers much of our life, to leave those places of safety behind. And I'm proposing that good things happen on the open road. And one of the things that happens in Abram and Sarai's life is that it's on the open road after they leave the, the comfort and the security of the place that they came from. It's on the open road that they are about to discover that their lives and stories are more than the sum of the parts that they can see. Because at home, it seems the only thing they would be able to see is we're barren, we can't have kids, that's the end of the line. It's on the open road that they're open to new possibilities about what their stories might mean. Possibilities that transcend the obvious sort of parts that don't add up. I share this because home can be a fantastic place when it tells you who you are, but home can also be the place that lies to you and says that's all you are. Home can be the place that can look at your biographical details or the wounds of your childhood or the story that you've written so far, and it can constrain you and say that's all that's ever going to be for you. But it's on the open road in their wandering when Abram and Sarai are about to discover there's more to them, more to their story. Not just that a family might be for them, but that through that family, blessing could show up all over the place. That their lives could be conduits of goodness in the world. That their lives could have the kind of meaning that they seem ineligible for the whole time. They're stuck at home hearing, all you are is a barren couple with nothing to give. If you are wandering, if you feel a little lost, if you feel far from home, and you're wondering what good could possibly come from it, it might be that on the open road, you have the chance to discover that you are more than the sum of the parts that you can see. And that though home tried to tell you who you are, they might have just said, here's all you are, and it's on the open road that you find out they were wrong. That you've got more to give to the world, that your life has greater meaning than what you've been told. So if you're on the open road, it may not be a bad thing. If you've been called out from the place that you came from and you feel a little lost, I don't know that that's a problem. It might be an incredible gift to you. And it might help you discover that your life is an incredible gift to the world. All right, that's all I got on Abram. Let's move on. Uh, another character in Scripture shows up in Genesis as well. Another person who finds himself far from home. This person, though, he's not called out. He doesn't um, get that sort of hopeful moment with God speaking to him like that. This is a man who is kicked out, who's expelled from home in a violent and threatening sort of way. The person I want to share with you for the next couple of moments is named Joseph. Uh, Joseph uh, is actually one of the descendants in the very story of Abram and Sarah. He's one of the fulfillments of the promise that their family would go on. And I'm a big fan of Joseph because Joseph is the runt of the litter and the little brother. In my entire life, I have both been the runt of the litter and the little brother. So Joseph is like solidarity for me, you know. Uh, side note, I have, a, I have an older brother. And we grew up with just enough Bible to say stupid things to each other. So like I remember we were at the dinner table one day and my brother was just trying to push my buttons. And I'm a piano player and he's not. And he says to me at dinner, completely unprovoked once, he just says, hey, Jason, did you know that in the Bible, the oldest son gets all the possessions from the parents? And so when I grow up and mom and dad die, I'm taking the piano and I'm not going to use it, but you can't have it. <laughs> Little did he know that I would have a microphone later in life. Um, <laughs> so I, I, honestly, like, I really relate to the conundrum of Joseph and the experiences that he has. And so Joseph uh, is um, having these really big, brazen dreams 
And in these dreams, he interprets that there will be a time when his brothers bow down to him, which is the same dream that every little brother in the history of the world has had, right? But he tells them, which surprisingly doesn't go well. He has another dream where it's not just the brothers, but even his parents that are bowing down to him. And so the brothers take issue with that. In the meantime, his father has a particular kind of favor for Joseph, and so he he makes that known to the other brothers, and he adorns Joseph with special garments to kind of indicate his favorite status. And so Joseph and his brothers are at odds with one another in all sorts of ways. And one day the brothers are out tending to the flocks, and Joseph is sent out to meet them there. And this happens in chapter 37 of Genesis. Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, one of the brothers, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There's no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, (laughs) our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. Joseph is violently kicked out of home. He finds himself far away from tribe, from land, from belonging, from the place that he knew. And it's because of a violent sort of expulsion that happened for him. There's even uh, imagery in the scriptures uh, that suggests a sort of death and resurrection pattern. So we read he went down into the cistern, and then he's pulled up, and then he goes down into Egypt, and then he's raised up, and then he goes down into prison, and then he's called up. And scholars, even Jewish scholars, uh, like a guy named John Levinson, who writes really fantastically about these stories, Levinson says, this is actually sort of an echo of death and resurrection happening in his life while he's out there on the open road. To go down and be raised up to go down and be raised up, to go down and be raised up. This is the pattern in his life when he's expelled from the place where he belonged. So Joseph is out there, and uh, he's in Egypt, far from where he probably wanted to be, far from his beloved father and mother. He gets there, of course, at first he's a a slave servant, and he's sold into the household of a person named Potiphar. Potiphar's a pretty important person in Egypt. Potiphar's wife makes an advance against Joseph, and Joseph resists it, and then Joseph is thrown into jail because of that whole skirmish. Joseph, down there in jail, then meets two of Pharaoh's former court members, two people who had fallen out of favor with Pharaoh and been thrown in prison. And these two court members are having strange dreams, and Joseph has a gift for interpreting dreams. And so he hears their dreams, and he tells these two people from Pharaoh's court, good news for one of you, your dream means that in just a few days you're going to be called back up into Pharaoh's court, back up into Pharaoh's favor. Other guy, bad news for you, your dream means you're going to be executed. Both of these things happen. Uh, The man who was raised back up into the favor of Pharaoh's court is there for a while, forgetting about Joseph down in prison until one day Pharaoh has dreams. With Pharaoh's dreams, uh, he's disturbed, and he's asking, can anybody help me interpret these? And that one person who'd been in jail with Joseph remembers him finally, conveniently, and says, I know a guy. 
And so they bring Joseph up out of jail and bring him into Pharaoh's court where Pharaoh tells him, I've had these dreams, one about big, fat, sleek cows. I just picture like filet mignon. Right? Like, um, big, fat cows who are then devoured by emaciated cattle. And then I had a dream about fattened heads of grain, which are devoured or destroyed by emaciated heads of grain. What does this mean? And Joseph quite convincingly tells Pharaoh, uh, this means that Egypt is going to enjoy seven years of abundance. And after that seven years of abundance, there'll be seven years of famine. And that unless you administer the abundance wisely, you're not going to make it through the famine. So Pharaoh says, I wonder what I should do. And Joseph says, you should find a guy who can administer all of Egypt's resources during the seven years of abundance so that we can make it through the famine. I think I know a guy. And sure enough, Pharaoh raises Joseph up. So now Pharaoh is one of the most powerful people in the kingdom administering the resources of Egypt. Now, if you've been kicked out of home, there might have been a long season of frustration, of pain, of suffering, of scarcity, of fear, of, of just being out there, not belonging anywhere, not knowing what it's all about. And then you find yourself finally in a better place, right? And then there are years and miles between you and the people in the place that kicked you out. Maybe you felt that experience before. You get to that moment, you have that sense of relief, right? Well, Joseph has that same kind of relief. So this is after he's been raised up into power in Pharaoh's house, before the famine comes. We read this in chapter 41. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. And Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. Like, thank God there are so many years and so many miles between me and the people who kicked me out, me and the family that wounded me, me and the place that I came from, that finally I can breathe deeply and just be grateful for where I am. Anybody relate? Anybody had a moment where you were longing to get enough years and distance away from that and you finally got to a place where you thought you could breathe deeply? And then does anybody sense what's lurking in this text, which is a little bit like a moment in the story where some character naively says, what could possibly go wrong? And this is actually like loaded with dramatic weight. It's that momentary relief that you know it's too early in the movie to be done, right? So Joseph says, thank God that God has put so many years and miles between me and that painful place that I can finally rest, not knowing that he is right around the corner from having that home come bumping back into him. So the famine happens in Egypt. And it's not just for the Egyptians, but it's the whole sort of region, which means that Joseph's family, those brothers and his parents, that they too are going to suffer the famine. And so the brothers are sent into Egypt knowing nothing of Joseph's fate. And they're sent in there to procure some resources to help their family survive the famine. And wouldn't you know it, they end up face to face with the brother that they had tried to kill, the one they sold into slavery, the one that they kicked out. Shows up a little while later here, we read in chapter 42. Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. Now, mind you, there's probably been 20 years between the day that Joseph's brothers kicked him out and this moment. During that time, Joseph has taken on an Egyptian dialect and an Egyptian name, and they probably think he's dead, so they don't even recognize the fact that they are staring at the one that they had expelled. And Joseph finds himself miles and years from the place that kicked him out, and the place that kicked him out comes back for him. I share this because if you have been wandering far from home, 
And maybe you've been grateful for the years or the miles between you and that place or those people. You might have also discovered that there's all sorts of ways that that place, those people, those memories, those wounds, those patterns, those experiences, they can still come for you. Anybody been there? Anybody been a parent who left behind a, a family system where your parents didn't know how to parent very well? Maybe they were broken, neglecting, abusive, destructive patterns in the way that you were parented, and you put miles and years between you and that experience, thank God, and you find yourself with children, and you discover some of those patterns are with you, whether you like it or not. They come creeping in in unexpected moments, and you realize a little bit of your father, a little bit of your mother is still with you as you parent. Maybe you left behind a spiritual community of some sort, and you were grateful to get miles and years between you and that place or those people because it was wounding and unsafe. And yet you find, even after all those miles and all those years, that the wounds are still with you and that time and distance aren't enough to heal them. It strikes me that, like, Joseph's not the only one who has to confront what happened when he got kicked out. It's interesting. I don't have time to take you through the next few chapters, but Joseph, you can see him grappling with what he wants to do with the fact that his brothers are here, and he has power over them now, right? He has real power over them. You see him wanting to give them what they need, but kind of toying with them a little bit and testing them a little bit and wanting to make sure that his father is okay or his little brother Benjamin's okay. And there's this kind of back and forth that goes on and on for, for pages in the text. And, and the more I think about this not just being some dusty pages in the scripture, but a very human experience, the more I find myself relating to it. Because if you have had home come back and confront you, or home come back and meet you in the day that you were living in now, you've probably grappled with what you want to do about that, how you want to interact with that. Do you want to ignore it? Do you want to hit back for what they did? Do you want to exercise the power that you have now to keep them down and build yourself up? I don't know if it's the people or if it's the memories. I don't know if it's the place or the experiences or the wounds, the hurts. But I'm pretty sure that most of us discover that though we are far from home, home has not left us yet. There's a commentator named Bill Moyers who says it really succinctly like this. He says, far from home, Joseph is never far from his roots. And it strikes me that one of the goods of the open road is it's a chance to confront those things get a little distance, a little safety, you get yourself to a better place, which is really appropriate. Get yourself safe, get yourself to a better place, but then don't fall into the naivety of Joseph imagining that those things are miles away. Figure out what you're gonna do when you discover that they're still with you in some ways. There's uh, smarter people than I who have coined this sort of clever phrase who say that if you don't transform your pain, you'll transfer it, which is like one of the truest patterns in human experience, right? It's with you unless you know what to do with it. And you might have been kicked out and it might have hurt really bad. You might be grateful that God has put miles and years between you and the place that you came from, but you might still have some work to do. There's a final moment in the pages of this story that strikes me for a couple of reasons. Uh, Joseph has sort of been toying with his brothers and sent them away and brought them back and sent them away and brought them back. And he's finally ready to really make peace with them, and they're terrified. This is the end of Genesis. This is the end of the first book of the Bible. Chapter 50, this happens. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
you intended to harm me, watch. But what God intended for it, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. So this is the moment of healing, the moment of reconciliation, the moment where Joseph's able to finally confront and then make peace with the fact that he'd been kicked out and the people who did the kicking out are right there in front of him. And embedded in his moment of peace and restoration is a reckoning with the purpose of his wandering. Now watch this. I'm not saying it's good that he was kicked out. And if you were kicked out, if there was any wound or violence that came at you for the way that you had to leave home, I'm not saying it's good that that happened. But there's probably some good that has happened since. So Joseph's kicked out, but he's able to look back on what the wandering has done in him and through him. And he realizes his life was being given to the world as a gift the kind of gift that might not have happened if he had stayed home. And so the, the, the promise that's given to the man who's called out, which is that your life will be a blessing for the world, right? The promise that's given to the man who's called out becomes the perspective of the man who's kicked out. And Joseph looks upon his own life and says, this life too was here to be a gift for the world. And I might not like what you did to me, and I might not be great with the way that it happened, but the fact is this wandering road has helped me become the kind of person who could be a gift to the world. And I share that with you, like, not to, not to guilt you if you have bad feelings about where you came from. I share that with you to lift your head and say that I, I don't care if you were called out or kicked out. I don't care if they rejected you or if they tried to hold on to you. If you've been wandering for a little while, it's probably because God has an incredibly high estimation of the potential of your life that your life is a gift, that your life is a channel, that your life is here to give something to the world that the world is desperate for. And if you discover that in your wandering, God has broken your life open to give something to the world, then you can lift your head high and maybe make peace with the difficult road that you have walked. You might even say God has used it for good. You might even put some pieces back together from the broken places. You might understand why the scriptures love the wandering so much. Why God said to Israel through the prophet that we looked at last week, I loved it when we were out there on the open road. Because out there in their open road, you were becoming something that was good. So if you've been kicked out, I'm sorry. I don't know the nature of that in your life, but if you've been kicked out, I'm sorry. There are a lot of stories of exile in Sopham City Church. Exile from families of origin, exile from marriages, exile from churches. If you've been kicked out, I'm sorry. But I don't think it's bad that you're out on the open road. <laughs> if you've been called out to a wild and unknown future, I'm sorry for the insecurity, for the difficulty of that road, but I don't think it's a bad thing. And whether kicked out or called out, I think your life is a gift. And the fact that you are wandering is a sign that you are in good company and that through you, God might want to give a gift to the world. If you're able, will you stand to your feet? Uh, next week, at the center of our gathering will be the table of Jesus, uh, Eucharist or communion. And it's specifically a part of this conversation uh, because there are so many ways that you can understand uh, the meal that Jesus gives as a wandering meal. It's a... Uh, it's a meal for the road. It's a meal for people who are far from home. And so that'll be uh, the center of our practice next week. Uh, please don't miss that. And let me just say, um, if you have been kicked out or called out, you're in good company. 
you are far from home or the places that told you who you are, may you discover that there may have been ways that they said that's all you are. And may it be on the open road that God speaks to you that you are more than the sum total of the parts that you can see. If you've been kicked out from home or called out from home, may you make peace with the place that you came from. Even if the people wounded you, even if they came against you, may you find a way to reconcile with the place that was home so that you too may discover the gift that your life is for the world. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. I love you guys. See you next week.